The Regulatory Transition Project. Interview with Jan Rosenau, episode 47. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak here with the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we're speaking with Jan Rosenau. He's the director of the Regulatory Assistant Project. The word project, as Jan tells us, was meant, actually kind of signaling, just a short period of time that the project was meant to run for, but it's been decades now that it's been going, and the project has grown into essentially a, a think tank consulting project that operates in China, Europe, India, and the United States. This is a great episode. Maybe every episode is great, but if you love regulation and understanding regulation and governance like I do, then, then this is a fantastic episode to listen to because as we know, I hope, if you're a listener of this podcast now, is that markets are not free. There's always different interventions into the markets, whether that's politics, whether that's lobbying on business organizations. So markets are not operating without government intervention. And the role of good regulation should be to guide the markets and make it a level playing field that's both good for business and both good for consumers. And I think Jan really explains in a very concrete and elucidated way about the role that regulation and policies play in the energy transition. So this is a great episode and he's a fantastic speaker on this topic. Jan tells us that regulation is not just regulation implemented by energy regulators, but as I mentioned, it's also about policies and the broader political and it's not just technocratic regulation making as actually has been in, in the past, but rather it's a much broader scope. And with that, we, we talk about the European Union. We even talk about America. And for the for example, within the European Union, we get in details about the Green Deal and the Fit for 55 uh, directives that are coming out to assist Europe's transition towards a much lower carbon energy system by 2030 and, of course, zero net emissions by 2050. So we go over that. And I do really want to emphasize that the point of today's podcast is to understand first what is regulation, what is the role of regulation, and to understand how we can move faster and the role that regulation plays in moving us towards, I would say, a zero carbon energy system. And Jan, he ends the the interview with a fantastic line about we can do it faster and we can do it cheaper and provide greater benefits to people by using effective regulation. One final note before we begin this week's episode, the My Energy 2050 podcast is available on most podcast apps. We are active on LinkedIn, so you can go there and and post some questions or make some comments on each episode. Feel free to do that. Finally, the intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. Today, I want to welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, Jan Rosenau. He's the director of the Regulatory Assistant Project. And Jan, if you don't mind, I'll keep the introduction about and your titles and everything you do short. And I just want to thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the conversation. And I'm I'm really interested looking at your profile and your education with what was that that drove you to study, particularly at that time, a master's degree and then a PhD really focused on energy? So my undergraduate was actually in geosciences and 
I um, was extremely interested in you know, the um, natural world and how it functions, but also um, our impact uh, as a human race uh, on the planet and on the environment. Uh, but I quickly learned what I was really getting interested in was not so much just understanding the impacts, but really understanding you know, how we can mitigate some of the negative impacts that we have on the planet, uh, how we can reduce emissions in particular. I got really interested in climate change, uh, but also other issues. Um, and I studied environmental economics and environmental policy um, initially, and then specialized uh, in, in energy efficiency policy in my PhD, which really was, um, at the time, was a result of, you know, there was funding for this, and, um, and I was really interested in the subject. Uh, and that's got me into the energy space. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And and how does regulation come into into this focus here? I mean, regulation is uh, yeah. I take a very broad view of what that encompasses, not just regulation as in the strict sense of the term, uh, which is usually referred to sort of regulation by the energy regulator of regulated um, entities. But regulation really means, I think, all of the the different policies. You know the different ways how we design markets. Um, you know how we how we essentially uh, set government policy around the energy system. That to me is what regulation is all about, and it is so critical that we get that right because regulation always provides incentives one way or another. You know we have an old saying uh, at RAP, which is that all regulation is incentive regulation. So even if you do not deliberately build in incentives for market actors, for utilities, for consumers, there always is an incentive built into the system, even if you are not deliberately putting these incentives in place. And often, unfortunately, these incentives work against you know, some of the outcomes that we all want to achieve. For example, lower emissions, lower prices, system reliability, you know, all the different things that you would expect the public would want to see from good energy regulation. Mm -hmm. Maybe I back up and I ask you a question about uh, free markets. And what, what about the idea that the, the energy sector should be a free market and we shouldn't have regulation? Well, markets are never entirely free. There's always a framework in which they operate. And um, that has always been the case in the energy space. So I think this idea that you have completely free markets, completely um, freed from any regulatory influence um, is a fantasy. Um, I don't think that exists anywhere in the world. Um, it's not desirable. So every market that exists in the energy space is regulated in some way uh, or another. And that is very important because uh, you know, the risk, of course, is if we have a completely unregulated energy market, uh, that you get outcomes uh, which uh, are not desirable. Um, you know, for example, you, you may get issues around the reliability of the energy system uh, and get prolonged periods of blackouts, which is clearly not something uh, that, that is desirable. But that may be an outcome um, you know, of an energy market that has no safeguards put in place, no requirements um, to actually... Uh, ensure reliability. So th that's why regulation is always going to be a function of any energy market. The question then becomes what kind of regulation, um, how to design it, um, and um, how to implement it and ensure that it's actually being translated into real action. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe we go to the, the real action and you, you can describe what the regulatory assistance project is. 
Sure. Um, so RAP, um, in short, the Regulatory Assistance Project, uh, is a group of energy experts. Uh, we don't really call ourselves a think tank, although people often refer to us as a think tank. We were founded in the early 1990s, almost three decades ago, uh, pretty much around the time when the first, um, where well, the Rio conference took place, um, yeah, 1992. Mm -hmm. That's now, you know, uh, history, um, and a lot of people don't even remember that, but that's when we were founded. And we were founded with the premise to assist the incoming generation of regulators. This was in the US where we were founded. Uh, and the idea was really to um, support them with developing better regulation to accelerate the transition uh, to a clean energy system that is also affordable. So that was the sort of mission. And it was only you know, a very small number of people that uh, were involved in the early days um, of the organization. Three people um, were the Regulatory Assistance Project. Uh, and the word project uh, is actually indicating that it was always meant to be you know, a one-off project, and then it turned into an organization because the project became many projects, uh, and out of the three people grew an organization that today is uh, is, is about 60 people uh, around the world, um, and we now no longer just work in the U.S., but also in China, in India, uh, and in Europe, uh, you know, which is the region that I um, lead, where I lead the, the team. Um, and um, the work we do um, is, is not much broader. It's not just assisting your regulators, uh, with regulatory questions, but we also work with other institutions. For example, we work with governments. You know, we work with international organizations such as the IEA. We also work with the European Commission. We also support advocates and we also collaborate with industry. Um, so we have a much broader remit in, in, in what we do. But the mission statement, um, yeah, I mentioned the, the main idea was to create regulation to accelerate the clean energy transition is still the same. Uh, but I, the just, have changed. I just want to say that I, I we had a presentation from with some representatives from E3G yesterday, and I mentioned to them that I was speaking to you today, and they said, "Oh, we cooperate with them." So, uh, yes, um, so so I can definitely say that uh, your your impact is even within the circle I know, and then I really like how how it has grown around the world this this project. And I'm just wondering why why do you think it has been able to grow and and be so prominent in many countries or in in and I would say big markets. So the, the, well, there are several reasons. I think one reason is there is a real need uh, in the energy space to share best practices, experiences, bad and good, uh, from different countries, and there's so much value in you know having access to examples of past successes and past failures of energy regulation, and then carry those examples to decision makers uh, in countries that want to change their existing regulatory framework. So that is one of the, I guess, unique selling points of RAP that we can say, look, we've, we work in all of these different regions and we can carry the best practices from around the world and make them relevant to you so you can adapt them and do something with them. So there's a demand for that kind of work. At the same time, we've been able um, to persuade our funders um, to expand, to go beyond Europe. And that is, you already mentioned, you know, it's a large power markets around the world um, where we are active. That's where a lot of the emissions, of course, are. Um, so there's a real need to also work um, in those other regions if we want to you know, solve climate change um, and reduce emissions. We can't just focus on one region. We have to really focus 
ideally on the entire world, but with limited resources, uh, our approach has been to go there where the big emissions are from the power sector. And that is China, India, um, Europe and the US. Mm -hmm. And could you maybe describe some of the commonality, but also some of the differences in between these markets? Well, they I are. Mean, when, when, when you approach them with, with regulation, uh, which is a very, again, as you said, at the very beginning, it's a very broad spectrum of what is regulation. And so how, what could you, for example, if you learn something from the United States or, or from Europe, how would that maybe apply in China or in, in India? So the, yes, indeed, e each place is different, and the you know, the culture, the history um, of regulation is different in each country, uh, and even within the country, uh, like take the United States at state level, there are differences in regulatory traditions uh, and capabilities uh, approaches. Um, so we are, we are very mindful of that, and you know, we do not believe that you just have a blanket approach that you can impose on everybody or advocate to everybody to copy um, that will work. So regulation needs to be adopted um, and adapted at the same time so, so that it makes sense, you know, for the specific context in which it operates. What are the big differences that, that I see? And of course, I focus mainly on Europe. So I, from what I know, um, it's basically, yeah, it's based on discussions with colleagues uh, but also um, you know, some involvement in the projects we're doing in these other regions, um, is that um, in the US, um, you have a lot of uh, transparency, you have a highly regulated um, process where um, you know, a lot of the utilities are, are still sort of um, virtually integrate, vertically integrated, uh, and all of the different bits of the utility are heavily regulated uh, with public utility commissions, uh, in a lot of participation from other actors, that is quite different in other countries. Um, you know, in Europe, for example, we unbundled uh, the energy uh, system uh, quite a bit. So we have um, a lot of companies that just focus on supply generation, on networks, um, and it's, a quite, it's quite different. So the, the way utilities are regulated in the US is fundamentally different to how they're regulated in Europe because the supply side, the retail side in Europe uh, is, is, is not going through a similar process where you know, revenues are being determined by the regulator, um, that still happens where we have natural monopolies in the, on the network side, um, but we do not do that in Europe um, for um, the supply and retail end um, of, of, of the business. And, and that's a fundamental difference between um, most states in the US and, and Europe, just how, how utilities are being regulated uh, because of yeah, that difference uh, in, in, in structure. Uh, and of course, in, in places such as China, um, you, know, you have a completely different government system. Um, and, and again, um, you can't just assume you know, what works in Europe will equally work well um, in China. Um, but there are elements of things that work well in Europe or in the US um, that will also have high relevance uh, in the Chinese um, regulatory system. You talked about the U.S. Uh, the U.S. influence on Europe on unbundling, for example, and maybe I'll just put in this neoliberal framework that that uh, deregulation happened in the U.S. first, and then Europe kind of got on that as well and debundled and unbundled its different um, energy companies. And I'm just trying to think now with higher energy prices, and we're we're in this, uh, I would say, um, interesting and scary state at the moment with with such high energy prices. Do you see things uh, moving differently, almost, I don't want to say backwards, but uh, 
you know, going back to larger state involvement in the power markets rather than just uh, the role of regulation and the regulator as being an independent entity. But there, there could be more politics in the, in the power markets in Europe. Well, we already see that. I mean, the fact that um, you know, power market design is debated now in, in the national press in several countries uh, is, is, is quite um, interesting and, of course, exciting for people like me who work in this space. But it's also unusual. You know, quite often these market discussions take place um, amongst the expert community, you know, between the regulator, um, between market actors, um, government departments, um, but not really, um, you know, get lots of coverage in, in the media. And that has clearly changed. And we now see um, proposals um, for changing the current market framework uh, in different member states. Um, and there are calls, um, you know, for, for tweaking what we currently have. Um, some of which um, you know, raise some important questions, but some of which um, are also um, problematic because they suggest there's an easy fix um, to, to the current gas price crisis, which there isn't. You know, this, is, this is a much more fundamental structural uh, problem and suggestions such as you could simply um, you know, pay everybody an average price um, and, and avoid um, you know, high prices in the electricity market uh, that, that stem from the fact that you know, gas is often on the margin and gas prices are very high, so it sets a very high clearing price in energy markets, um, I, I think are, are, are certainly problematic because uh, in the long term, this will lead uh, potentially to underinvestment and then you could have problems with reliability. Um, so there, I, I think it, there are no short-term fixes in terms of market design, uh, but at the same time, it just highlights our dependency on, on gas uh, in many places. And it highlights a need for speed in rolling out the alternatives, you know, more demand side flexibility, more storage, more renewables um, to reduce the impact of gas price fluctuations on the electricity market uh, and also to reduce the demand for gas in other sectors. We talk a lot about electricity and that made the headlines in the press. But when you look at where the gas is actually being used, at least in northern Europe, most of the gas is used in buildings for heating uh, and not for making electricity. Uh, and that's an area that is completely um, under, under appreciated in the discussion where, you know, by simply reducing gas demand for energy efficiency, we could already alleviate some of the pressure that consumers face. Yeah. And maybe, maybe we can get back to energy efficiency and I'm sure we'll talk more about the power markets, but but this is a great point point about energy efficiency and the lack of investment so far. And maybe you can just describe uh, somewhat briefly, but what are the benefits of of energy efficiency in buildings? Well, there are so many, right? Um, we start, and the IEA um, have famously you know had their their flower of all the benefits. You can find it on the web if you Google multiple benefits energy efficiency. Um, flower, you find this beautiful graph where they have many, many benefits of energy efficiency. But I would say um, you got to separate that into um, different types of benefits. So one benefit is directly accruing to the occupant of the building um, and the building owner, which in some cases is the same person and sometimes it's not. So, in, you know, for example, reduced builds, right? higher comfort levels, uh, higher value of the property, potentially, there's a correlation between your energy performance and, and property values that's been established uh, in, in academic research. Uh, so that's a direct benefit from energy efficiency 
um, for the occupant, but also the owner of the property. Uh, and then, of course, there are wider system benefits for the energy system. You know, reduced demand, I already mentioned that. Um, but also, if you think about, you know, as we electrify more and more buildings, we move away from combusting fossil fuels for heat generation. Um, there's, there's now um, an opportunity to use buildings as a flexible resource on the system to modulate electricity demand uh, to make this specific, you know, you could, for example, preheat a building that's using a heat pump uh, in the early hours of the morning uh, when there's a lot of wind on the system, yeah, especially in Denmark, for example, uh, that is the case. There's a good correlation between offshore wind generation um, and the potential for preheating. Um, and, and equally, you could take advantage um, of, you know, solar uh, and do cooling, uh, pre-cooling um, if you have uh, better insulated buildings. Uh, so you can use um, well-insulated buildings as a system resource. And then finally, of course, yeah, there are the wider societal benefits around reduced carbon um, to meet our climate goals, you know, less air pollution. Uh, you know, not many people know that actually in inner cities, often the contribution from heating buildings to things like NOx emissions um, is very sizable. It's very significant. Um, and, and that is something that can be addressed through energy efficiency. Uh, so there are these kind of three categories, you know, the building owner and occupant, the energy system, and then society, um, which yeah, all of all of who benefit from energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the benefit for uh, investing in energy efficiency has this knock on effect for we'll just take gas because this is a really important topic in, in Europe right now. And, and degasification, I guess, and electrification of heating is, is really on the agenda. Yes. Um, I mean, that clearly... Um, there is huge potential. Um, I don't think anyone has has modeled this um, in a meaningful way, sort of demonstrating, you know, if we um, uh, improved energy efficiency of buildings by this much, this would be the impact on the gas price. Um, of course, you, you could model that, um, uh, but I don't think anyone has done that yet. Uh, but very clearly, the import dependency um, uh, in terms of the amount of gas that we import in Europe um, is, is growing. I mean, that's quite different to the US. When you look at the US, a lot of um, the gas is produced domestically, um, and uh, especially with the shale gas revolution in the US, that, that amount has gone up. But in, in Europe, um, the import dependency um, actually goes up, and every year we import more and more gas, uh, and that is causing uh, you know, some of the problem. So reducing that gas demand by improving energy efficiency of buildings in particular um, will, um, you know, first of all, reduce the amount of gas used in buildings, of course, and therefore reduce uh, the gas um, bills that people have to pay. Uh, but uh, it would also be logical to then uh, assume that that, in a, that will also lower gas prices because you have a, a lower demand for gas, which should re lead to a reduced gas price also in the other sectors, including the electricity sector. Mm -hmm. And, and um, what we've what could be the role of regulation uh, in this to encourage energy efficiency, and maybe even how could you, how could regulation be built to assist buildings? I'll just say buildings moving away from gas as a source for heating. I mean, we had um, have a long tradition with energy efficiency programs <clears throat> for uh, utilities, of course, and um, we talked about the U.S. tradition before of um, regulation. And in the U.S., after the two energy crises in the 1970s, 
um, the first energy efficiency obligation on utilities uh, was put in place in California. And um, this was an idea that was essentially a response to the energy crisis you know, to say, look, um, we may be able to achieve the same service more cheaply um, if we uh, not just rely on supply side resources, but if we also mobilize the demand side and reduce energy demand in the first place. So the utilities were required uh, to reduce energy consumption or you know, to, put, to, to point it more specifically, um, to um, uh, increase energy efficiency, um, especially in buildings. Uh, and these programs have been um, rolled out across, I think it's now 26 uh, states in the US, but we also have them in about 16 member states in Europe now. Um, so we have very large, uh, very sizable programs for utilities to reduce um, energy demand through energy efficiency. Some of this are, these are really big. In, the, in France, that's, which is the biggest energy efficiency obligation in Europe, uh, the program is about 4 billion euros per year, um, possibly more, um, uh, which is a very sizable, in, sizable amount of investment that goes into energy efficiency. So that's one important component. Um, and of course, um, you then have um, other means. You can regulate not the just the utilities, but you can also regulate the building owners, for example. And that is something that's currently being uh, discussed very lively in, in Europe because we have a review of the what is called the Energy Performance and Buildings Directive, which sets standards primarily for new buildings, but also major renovations. And the European Commission is intending to have what they call a minimum energy performance standard, uh, potentially for all existing buildings. Uh, and you could use that as a, as a vehicle to over time um, you know, require that the least efficient buildings are upgraded to make them future-proof um, and to make sure that we get on track towards climate neutrality, which is the European goal, of course, for 2050. Uh, so you can regulate different entities um, in, in that way, whether that's you know, starting sort of further upstream with the utilities or further downstream um, with, with the building owners. Um, and, and both of this is happening. Uh, and and we, we see that you know, evaluations demonstrate consistently that these policies work. You know, they're, not, they're not perfect. They're, they have their flaws. Um, as any policy has, um, but they work. You know, overall, they have reduced um, emissions, they have reduced energy, and they have reduced customer bills. So maybe this is part of the the going forward the Fit for Fifty Five package. And there's going is there going to be a new? Uh, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. The new Energy Efficiency for Buildings Directive coming out, and these are some of the elements that that could be in it. Yeah, um, so there's a whole raft of, um, of legislation coming our way, some of which was released already uh, in the summer on the 14th of July, uh, where the Energy Efficiency Directive, the Renewable Energy Directive, um, the European Emissions Trading System um, reform, you know, all of these were released um, in the summer. But we now get um, you know, other parts of the Fit for 55 package, which has been put out there to achieve the goals of the European Green Deal. Um, and that includes the Energy Performance in Buildings Directive, uh, but also um, the, uh, the gas um, market package, which will come out very soon. Um, it's expected for December. It might get delayed, um, but that's legislation that we now see coming out, which will set um, more ambitious standards um, for buildings, um, most likely. But yeah, we're at the beginning of a very long legislative process. So this is just the initial proposal and you can expect very, very long nights, uh, many long nights in, in Brussels between the European Parliament, between the member states and the Commission uh, to agree on a final framework. 
And um, maybe maybe I won't push for what could happen in the future, what this will look like, but maybe ask about the role of regulation um, and maybe even a description of how, how does it go from being an EU directive uh, and then being implemented in member states and what is the ro role of regulation in that? Well, it depends really on what kind of um, uh, legislation you look at. There are some, there are some um, types of regulation that need to be transposed into national law uh, directly. Uh, and then there, are, and this is the majority of EU legislation um, in the energy space. And then there's legislation that um, uh, needs to be interpreted and adapted um, uh, so it can fit with the with the national um, uh, energy context. Uh, and of course, that's 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 been a long process. Energy was traditionally seen as a national matter. Um, it's a matter of national security, something that the European Commission should not get involved with uh, too much. But that has shifted over time. So, um, you know, in the early 90s, that was still the predominant view. Uh, but over time, we've seen much more integration, uh, partly because the markets are becoming more integrated, you know, especially the electricity market, where you have more connections, uh, more integrated markets, markets that actually cover wider geographical regions. So there's that going on. But also because of things like European climate goals and goals for renewables and energy efficiency. So it's no longer possible to completely rely on national action. Uh, and that's why Europe has become more interventionist, if, if you will. Uh, but it still requires an interpretation by member states. And you know, RAP has assisted both the commission in implementing the European legislation from a European commission point of view, but we also work with national governments and supported them uh, in finding you know, a good pathway uh, to comply with European legislation. Uh, and it's it's a complex process uh, because in many cases it's not crystal clear what exactly is required, and you know there's there's room for interpretation. Um, in some cases, member states um, need to sort of reassess the uh, institutional setting that which they have. Do they have the capabilities of actually, for example, monitor and evaluate and verify um, what's going on, or do they need to set up a new a new body for that? Uh, you know, laws may need to be changed. Often that's primary legislation at national level. So there's a complicated process involved in that, <clears throat> and which is not always straightforward. Um, so regulation that comes out at the other end, at the member state level, um, often goes through a pretty lengthy process. Um, and, and then, of course, you need to sort of look back at what's actually in the directive uh, and what has the member state done uh, to implement that. And in some cases, there's a good match. But in some cases, there's a big gap and you find that what's what's been the intention of the original legislation is is not matched with what a member state has actually put in place uh, in practice. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I go down one more level uh, rather than focusing on the role of governments, but the lo the role of, well, maybe like local governments or people kind of in general and um I know what I'm trying to get at. How 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 can and I think maybe this is part of the new package, or at least from what I've learned, is that um, how can the European Commission or just maybe you could say the EU institutions themselves create? And I know this is actually one of the priorities: create a more direct, stronger connection with with people in the different member states, rather than relying on the member state governments themselves mediating this relationship. That's a hard question. Um, it's a really difficult question. I think it's a question that um, you know, the Commission certainly is asking. 
Um, and it's a lot more difficult for the European Commission, of course, to, to connect with people all over Europe. Um, uh, it's much, much easier for, I mean, it's difficult enough for national government, but much easier um, for national government to do that. Um, so that it's really hard. And I think, yeah, one of the um, areas of concern, of course, around European, not just energy policy, is that um, you know, if it becomes too detached from sort of people's daily lives and and how they um, see the world and and what they think is important, then um, yeah, that that's, that 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 is is a potential for um, uh, you know, people not feeling um, not not buying in, in, in into the sort of European. Uh, energy transition in in the way that uh, we really need them to because that that is going to be critical. Uh, but how to involve people um, in European policy is is is, is very difficult. Um, I mean, there are ways um, of of demonstrating um, why we do all of this, but I think member states ultimately have the responsibility uh, to communicate why we're doing what we're doing uh, in Europe, why that is important. I think the Commission has a relatively limited um, potential to, to do that, um, but it's it's also outside of my area of expertise how exactly the Commission engages um, you know with uh, citizens. Um, I, I think this is I see see member states more uh, as being um, you know in charge of being sort of a mediator between the European Commission um, and um, you know, and consumers. Mm-hmm. I, I'll just say first um, I. Yeah, I like asking questions that I don't know the answer for, and then sometimes don't have an answer, <laughs> and and uh, that that usually is really good for students. And then the other the other point is, you know, I live in Hungary, so so um, understanding and even I would say even maybe on the Polish side a bit, but seeing how some governments maybe don't represent their people or have kind of gone off the rails in representing their their people or representing what the EU is about, then then. It, maybe it also depends. Part of the answer, at least from my side, would be it, it depends on on uh, what was it? The, the the location where you're from and and how much. Because, for example, in Hungary, there is a lot of trust in the EU institutions, uh, but how then how that how the, that relationship is mediated through the national government here in Hungary uh, results in in a different perspective be being given out. So this is kind of the basis of my 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 question. This kind of this divide of of newer member states uh, compared to older member states, how these directives, and maybe we don't talk have to talk. We could just again uh, maybe state general, but in the energy space, there's very different interests being represented. Uh, for example, in Poland and the role that coal plays, or even the role that gas plays. Since I would say gas and nuclear power is is strongly supported in Eastern Europe. Um, maybe overall, my, my question would be, how can the European Union as a whole navigate this very tricky area of energy policy and the energy mix going forward? Yeah, um, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there is it's a divide, um, and um, this is something that has been consistently challenging um, because you have some countries that have um, more resources, more experience, um, and different politics um, than than other countries, <clears throat> and that um, that creates tension. Uh, you know, by default, you can see that in debates in the European Parliament, uh, but you can also see that in national responses um, to European policy. Um, so that that is that is that is clearly a challenge. 
Uh, I mean, we um, as an organization work in all of these places. So we've worked for many, many years in Poland. Um, we've worked for many years in the UK. We've worked for many years in Germany. Um, we also have um, a colleague who's based in Budapest in Hungary. Um, you know, we, we, we do not, I just hired someone who is um, going to join us early next year, who is from Poland uh, and worked in the energy sector there. Um, so we, we uh, deliberately do not um, just focus on, let's say, um, the usual suspects, right? You could, you could decide, oh, let's just work with the Nordic countries, um, uh, for example, and um, you know, uh, where there's some really exciting innovation happening you know, around electrification, renewables, um, and that's all great. And we, you know, we, and we have worked in Sweden and we have collaborated with people in Denmark. Um, but it's important, I believe, that we work in member states from all geographical areas. You know, also in Southern Europe, like Spain, Italy, we have engaged, um, Greece, um, and maybe even outside of Europe, you know, in some of the countries um, that uh, currently um, copy some of the European policy uh, because they are on a journey towards closer EU alignment. So we also work in Turkey and in Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, for that reason. Uh, so I think it's important um, to kind of you know, keep engaged in all of these places and not lose sight of what, what happens um, and in, in, in some of those countries where it's a bit more challenging. And also to acknowledge that it's a lot harder, um, you know, if, if you are reliant on cheap electricity um, uh, from uh, old coal power plants to suddenly, um, you know, buy into this vision of, um, you know, replacing all fossil generation with uh, renewables and and zero emissions dispatchable thermal generation storage and flexibility. Yeah, that's a completely different vision of where we need to go. So that takes time. But I would also say what I think is encouraging is that we now see signs emerging also in in, in some of the new member states um, that um, yeah, the clean energy transition is is coming. Uh, to a point where it's taking off. I mean, you could look at Poland to stay with that example for a minute um, and the amount of investment for into offshore wind um, in the Baltic Sea um, is, is pretty substantial and it's expanding. Uh, and that was unthinkable, um, you know, just five years ago. So that really, has really changed. So I think that, that sort of um, transition, once it catches, uh, will be much faster. But I think there's resistance um, that that can only be uh, broken down by focusing on some of the on the positives of that of which there are many on, on really demonstrating this is this is beneficial to the economy this is beneficial um, to the citizens of the country um, and and it's not something that you need to be scared of mm -hmm. and and maybe that brings us back to actually our initial discussion of of the well subsidies or lack of subsidies but but the the cost of renewables themselves and the cost of energy efficiency dropping so much and being so much uh, and being very competitive against fossil fuels. So this is the maybe we can be visionary for for the last few minutes and and see that the that it, it, the role that regulation has played in the past in Europe to encourage renewable energy and to encourage energy efficiency. Yeah, you see this as a turning point. I mean, we're in some countries, and now it's really picking up in others that kind of help. We're holding back a little bit. Yeah, certainly the discussion has completely changed. I remember very well, uh, fifteen years ago, when you know renewables were 
um, in most places still significantly more expensive than the new fossil generation. And you had to justify um, you know, subsidies for renewables um, based on the um, in, you know, negative economic environmental costs um, of, of fossil generation. So you could, you could make a case for subsidies. Well, now there are many instances where you no longer need any subsidies because you know, building new capacity, often um, utility scale solar, for example, is cheaper than building new coal power plants. Um, and, and that is clearly uh, very attractive. So the, the discussion has changed and renewables have dropped so much in price and continue to drop in price. We also see um, other technologies, I mean, battery technology, um, amazing um, innovation happening with, with prices coming right down. Um, and continuing to drop. Um, and, and, and now we're seeing the same happening in other sectors where, where we haven't done as much in the past. I mean, you could look, we talked about buildings before, uh, huge need to decarbonize. Um, so things like heat pumps, uh, but also rolling out energy efficiency more cheaply. Uh, we will see, I'm, I'm, I believe very, very strongly in that, we will see a reduction in costs um, in that space as well. So I think the proposition for the clean energy transition um, is now uh, quite different. Um, you know, it's it's no longer just about um, carbon, but I think it's also about uh, achieving um, something better that's um, you know at lower cost with less air pollution um, uh, and and not relying on fossil imports in a lot of cases. You know, it's domestic energy that's produced um, within countries that benefits people locally and directly, um, and and I think that's that's a positive new story around the energy transition um, that, that, that is, um, I think, emerging and we're going to see much more of. Mm -hmm. And um, could you maybe expand on the role of hydrogen? I, I see, I saw on LinkedIn, you've been posting on that. And, I, and I'm interested because, uh, yeah, hydrogen, and I'll just use my own label, is, is like the new shale gas, it seems like. So it seems like for some, it can solve everything. But for others, it's it's yeah, it's not there yet. So could you maybe reflect on the future of hydrogen in the EU? Big question. Um, so let me start um, with a positive statement about hydrogen. So I believe um, hydrogen is going to be essential in the energy transition. Um, and it's going to be um, important that this the hydrogen that we use is ideally zero carbon, because we have climate goals that require almost the full decarbonization of the economy. Um, and um, it will be especially um, important in the electricity sector where hydrogen, for example, could be used for uh, dispatchable power generation, of which I believe we will need uh, quite large amounts of, especially um, as we electrify more of the transport and building sector. Uh, so it's going to be important that that hydrogen is going to be zero carbon. Uh, so green hydrogen will have to be the priority. There's lots of other applications where hydrogen is going to be needed. Um, you, know, you can think of high temperature applications in the industry where it's simply um, not practical um, to use alternatives um, because you don't get the, the right temperatures. Um, or you could think of um, you know, um, areas where hydrogen is used as a feedstock, um, you know, fertilizer production, um, where you, you simply can't electrify, for example. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's a discussion about shipping and aviation, um, you know, long distance transportation, where um, you just don't get currently the, the energy density with, with battery storage, and it may not be cost competitive. I think the jury is still out, you know, um, to what extent can you electrify these applications, and to what extent do you need other forms of, of energy carriers, such as hydrogen. 
Um, but clearly there is potentially a role. Um, where I do not see a role for hydrogen, and that's where I've been quite vocal because I can see um, that there's a lot of um, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of arguments being put forward is the use of hydrogen uh, for low temperature heating in the building sector, uh, and the use of hydrogen in uh, in personal transportation in in, in, in vehicles, um, in cars, and also light vans, for example. Um, and that's simply because there are other alternatives that are more efficient, um, at lower cost, uh, and 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 more achievable. I mean, if we we're going to replace all the natural gas and all the heating oil in the building sector with hydrogen, for example. You can you can run the numbers and see um, how much hydrogen would we require if we made that from uh, green electricity. How many more renewables would we need to build out in Europe? And the numbers you get are really scary. You know, it it, it just looks unfeasible uh, simply on the grounds of how much additional capacity you need. Uh, of course, you may say, oh, why don't we just do blue hydrogen and use natural gas? Uh, you know, use steam ethan reforming uh, and then sequester, um, capture the carbon and, 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 and store it. Um, the problem with that is that um, currently you, and, and also in, in the future, it's not going to be possible to get to zero emissions with that technology. Um, and there is a debate out there, you know, and I'm not going to go into that. Um, you know, can we get to more than 90%? Can we even get um, uh, anywhere close to 90% um, emission reduction? But the, the key point here is that even with the best available technology, if you assume very low leakage of methane further up um, upstream, um, you still do not get to zero emissions, which to me suggests that if you use blue hydrogen, then you need to be quite careful uh, where you use it, um, and there needs to be very good reason for it. But to think that we can just replace all the gas we currently use with blue hydrogen, um, it's not a, not going to get us um, anywhere close to full decarbonization. That's that's the problem with blue hydrogen. Yeah, oh, I'll just express my opinion. It's kind of stupid. <laughs> so so you, we have gas, natural gas, and then why convert it into another gas when you could just use it directly? But you probably shouldn't use it anymore. So we should just yeah do something else or pink pink hydrogen. I think is the is the other kind of maybe we could I won't say neutral, but but. That was something from from nuclear power. Um, maybe I could I could buy into. So yeah, but but the blue hydrogen is not there. And uh, maybe maybe my my question is if we're producing rather than producing green hydrogen uh, to to heat homes, why not just use that electricity that's being produced to heat homes? But that's, that's kind of that's that's pre precisely um, what we would say. Uh, and that's not to say that there's no role for hydrogen in heating. I mean, that, that you, know, you could see um, a role for hydrogen for the purpose you just um, you just mentioned. Uh, you, know, you could use it um, to run um, thermal plants uh, du during those days when there isn't enough renewables on the system um, to generate the electricity that is then used in heat pumps to heat our homes, which is much more efficient than using the hydrogen uh, in, a, in a, for example, in a hydrogen boiler in a home. Um, another application potentially might be um, in some district heat networks where you might have combined heat and power plants. Um, you know, there isn't a great evidence base yet on that, but it's one of the areas where maybe there are, um, uh, you know, there, there are applications where this is um, a good alternative um, uh, as a complementary heat source. Um, and, and finally, um, you know, there might be some areas where you have high industrial usage of hydrogen already and local clusters. Well, um, yeah, there may be cases where a hybrid system where you have a heat pump coupled 
um, with a hydrogen system um, could be cheaper than upgrading the, the, the electricity network in that area. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not dogmatically against any of those options. I'm, I'm not even against using 100% hydrogen for heating in some buildings, as long as you can demonstrate that it is the cheapest, lowest cost option to decarbonize um, and delivers the highest amount of benefits. I mean, that, that should always be the metric that we use when we assess any technology. You know, it should be about economics, the ability to re reduce emissions and the wider system impacts. Um, and um, in, in some cases, that will lead to us saying hydrogen is a great option. And in other cases, we will say, well, actually, there are better alternatives. And, and that should guide our decision making, uh, not, um, I think, a belief in a specific technology um, versus another. I think it, it should be about applying common sense criteria to decision making. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm just, my, my one question would be, and, but maybe it's an, actually another question is just that a lot of this talk is about saving the gas sector itself and gas companies, converting them to hydrogen companies instead. But my, my further question would be, would it be better to kind of just redo and create a brand new hydrogen network rather than repurposing the gas network? Well, there will be um, parts of the gas network that um, will still be needed, of course, for, um, yeah, let's say we switch entirely to hydrogen um, for applications where gas is currently being used. Um, uh, certainly, if you, you still have a large requirement for hydrogen in, in, in sectors I mentioned before, industry, power generation, uh, potentially shipping aviation, etc. Um, so there's still a need for transportation of hydrogen. So the transmission um, uh, pipelines um, will still be important. Um, the, the more important question, I guess, is about the distribution grid. And um, a lot of the gas distribution grid serves um, you know, domestic properties um, uh, you know, for heating. Um, and there it is very clear that a lot of that um, uh, will become a standard asset as we move towards either district heating or electrification. Um, and for the companies that currently run these networks, of course, the question then arises, well, do we, what do we do instead? Um, uh, and um, I mean, this, and this is an interesting debate because clearly there are some skills that these companies have that could also be applied to district heating networks, for example. Um, uh, you know, there, there are, there are um, technologies um, that, that, that they could roll out to diversify, um, to not just rely on the gas network, but we're just at the beginning of that discussion, and currently what we see is a lot of pushback. Um, you know, we've seen that before. Remember the, the coal phase out, uh, there has been a suggestion we can just retrofit coal power plants uh, with CCS uh, technology. Um, you know, we could make sure that all new coal power plants are CCS ready and essentially continue as we have by retrofitting um, the, the fossil infrastructure. Uh, and that has led um, to very little. There's only one operating, uh, commercially operating coal power plant in the world uh, in Canada, um, and, and no other um, uh, plant exists. The last one shut in the US, I think, last year. Um, the one in, in, in Europe that uh, received a lot of press, I think, shut in 2014, um, at, at least the CCS um, uh, facility. Um, so I, I don't think we can rely on, um, on a quick fix here. Um, the, the hard uh, truth, I think, is for the gas industry um, that this is going to be a transition that will involve a reduction in gas use. Every scenario that's credible shows that we, we, use, we use less molecules, more electrons, 
um, and you can try to delay that, um, but um, ultimately that is something that's going to happen. Um, and um, I would hope that um, more gas companies will become part of the solution uh, and not just try to delay this because ultimately this will happen, will have to happen. Um, and um, proactive companies that want to be part of the solution will, will potentially benefit. Uh, but if you, you're just trying to delay, um, I think you will end up with stranded assets and you will end up um, with an outdated business model. Um, and, and, and that's not something that needs to happen. I think there's, 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 there's uh, an opportunity here um, to, to be much more pragmatic about this and, and not just try to prolong um, the, uh, you know, the current um, model of operating. Yes. And Jan, we, we could talk another hour just on stranded assets, but maybe we'll, we'll conclude there because I, I think that's really a, a good call for companies to get on board with this energy transition and not try to muddle through and prevent uh, a transition from happening more, more actively. My, my final question to you is, and it's the question I ask everyone, is, is what kind of energy system are we going to see in 2050? So we, I believe um, we will see um, a much more electric energy system. Um, it will be much more digital. It will be smart, much more flexible, um, much more decentralized. Um, you know, I think the, this model of having centralized generation, transmission, distribution, and then the end consumer is already um, becoming a lot more fuzzy um, you know, every year. But I think in 2050, um, it's going to be much more uh, decentralized. Um, than we can can imagine today. Um, uh, much more integrated um, between different countries, um, and and it's going to be zero carbon way before 2050, uh, and it will be cheaper to operate um, than than the current system um, is, uh, and deliver better service. I love that cheaper to operate and better service. So excellent, Jan. I want to thank you very much for for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.